Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Over the past six weeks, we have been exploring the covenant affirmations, which are the core beliefs of the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is our denomination. Now, these beliefs are not just static. They are also practices that help us put feet to our faith. So when we affirm the centrality of the word of God, we also make a habit to keep the word central in our lives, both individually and communally. When we affirm the necessity of new birth, we intentionally open our eyes to God's renewing work. When we affirm the whole mission of the church, we are also choosing to engage that work of mission, to actually do things that enable justice, things that bring life wherever we go. When we affirm the church as a fellowship of believers, we affirm that we cannot do this on our own, and so we make it a habit to be in community of faith, to stay connected with others as we learn and serve and grow together. And when we affirm a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit, we then choose to consciously depend on the Holy Spirit, to constantly, intentionally, and attentively depend. And so if we've learned anything over the past six weeks, it's that the affirmations are beliefs that are written for when the rubber of belief meets the road of life. But the thing is, the road of life is not always a smooth drive, Things do not always go according to plan or desire. So case in point today from the book of Acts chapter 15. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Okay, context time. Paul and Barnabas are both followers of Jesus, and at this point they are now missionaries. They are also both Jewish, though Paul was also a Roman citizen. Now, Barnabas, on the other hand, has been a leader in the church of Jerusalem until he left to travel with Paul. They've been preaching and teaching around the region of Galatia, which is this big chunk of space that's in what's now called central Turkey. They're in this city called Antioch in a region called Syria, and they're doing their thing, and some new missionaries show up. But it's not the great thing that they were hoping for. So these new missionaries begin to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we have a wrench in the works. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent some delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. So things have gotten so badly stirred up in the church in Antioch that the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas and a number of other delegates down to Jerusalem to figure out what on earth is going on. So... They arrive in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. So these missionaries 
are from, depending on which translation you read, either the Pharisees or the circumcision party. Now, let's face it, that is the worst kind of party. <laughs> that is about as fun as it sounds. Anyway, they begin teaching all these new believers that in order to receive this new life in Christ, they needed to follow Jewish law, which means that not only should they be following the dietary practices and Sabbath observance and all kinds of other things, but also all the men should be circumcised. Now, in the Old Testament, circumcision was this outward sign of obedience to God. Not, not too outward, um, but Jewish men were circumcised as a way to show that they were marked separate called by God to be a part of God's chosen people, the Jews. So likewise, following the dietary practices, the marital practices, rules about work and rest, and about every other part of life, were about modeling this new way of living in the world that the Gentile or the pagan nations would not have done. So the debate really comes down to this. Does a person have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? See, almost nobody had a problem with the Gentiles being included in the community of faith. Most of them looked back on the scriptures and they saw that it had always intended to be so. It's all through the Old Testament. But the question was, in what way were they meant to be included? Now, this circumcision party, or the Pharisees, said that Jesus, obviously, had become incarnate as a Jewish man. And the first Christians had all been Jews and so if a Gentile wanted to follow Jesus, they should do as Jesus did and follow the law as a Jew. Now Paul, on the other hand, is vehemently opposed to this line of thinking. What's funny is that he's also actually a Pharisee, which is a sort of a legalistic sect of Judaism. But he's seen too much to agree with them. Now we'll get to his understanding in a second because it's actually Peter at this very first council of the church, who speaks up. After a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So what a great development in this conversation. Now, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is actually turns out was written while Paul was moving from Antioch down to Jerusalem for this council, he speaks of having to oppose Peter to his face. The reason? Because while had Peter had seen the Holy Spirit come on the, the house of Cornelius, while Peter had then baptized that whole house himself, Peter, who Jesus had called the rock upon which I will build my church, has gone and done a distinctly not rock-like thing and uh, gone back on God's revelation, on his own conviction, out of fear of the Pharisees. And then the rest of the church in Jerusalem had followed his lead. The circumcision party was apparently very persuasive. And so Paul has to confront Peter with his hypocrisy. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, writes Paul. 
for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came from Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish leaders followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So back at the council in Jerusalem now, we hear in Peter's argument distinct echoes of Paul's words to him when they confronted him. He says first, I've seen this too. I've seen the Spirit of God working in the lives of the Gentiles. God called me to them and made no distinction between them, the Gentiles, and us, the Jews. Not only that, but why impose on them a law that we ourselves have never been able to keep? Because they never did. In the Old Testament, we find book after book after book written by prophets that are sent by God to Israel because Israel couldn't keep the law. There are pieces of the law, in fact, that were not even once practiced. The Jubilee, for example, where God commands every 49 years or every seven sevens, it's a very significant number in Judaism, that all of their property be returned to the original families that owned that property as a means of redistributing the wealth that had been accumulated by the few. But it was never practiced in the entirety of the time Israel had their land. This too is Old Testament law and the Jews just couldn't hack it. And Peter puts two and two together and says, why are we still trying to keep this? When they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. That's a direct quote from the book of Amos. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So the sixth and final affirmation of the covenant church is this. We affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. Like other affirmations, this is as much a practice as it is a belief. And it's in this affirmation that we see the uniqueness of the affirmations. They are not bullet points. Um, they're interconnected. They are tied together. They're lived within the context of one another. For example, the word of God can be kept central, first affirmation, only by our constant reliance on the Holy Spirit fifth affirmation, freed to new life, second affirmation, in the context of the whole fellowship of believers, third affirmation, in order to live out the whole mission of the church, fourth affirmation. Freedom in Christ to the covenant does have parameters, but those parameters are the other five affirmations. The centrality of the word of God, the necessity of new birth, the fellowship of all believers, the whole mission of the church, and conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit.
So to really understand here what we mean by the word freedom, we need to ask what the scripture means by freedom because we keep the word of God central to everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where um, the second affirmation can actually play a really helpful role. If we need new birth, it is because we are products of a world that was built perfect and then we broke. So new birth is the restoration in the midst of that brokenness, the process of living into reality that God is now remaking one, well, one life at a time. As Paul writes, we were slaves to sin, but no longer. And we must, we get to live into that reality. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it, Paul writes. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined to Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Paul writes that until Christ set us free, we didn't have the choice between goodness and its opposite. We were slaves, Paul writes, to what he calls the world or sin, or simply death. That's why it's a gift. We could not accomplish this ourselves at all. See, freedom is not what we think of as Americans. We hear this word a lot, right? We're told that freedom basically means getting to do whatever we want. That we're individually free in a world essentially of pure hedonism. But the scriptures tell a very different story. Doing whatever we want to the scriptures is not living into our freedom. It is actually living into our brokenness, the way that we were before we were freed. Paul writes it this way on his way to Jerusalem from Galatia. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. Christina read this for us earlier. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we are expectantly waiting for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion, neither of them, amount to anything. What matters is something far more interior. Faith expressed in love, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. The freed from slavery are not meant to go back into slavery. They are meant to live into their freedom, living into the character and the practice examples of Jesus as we make our way in this world. 
Freedom is actually meant to be understood both in what we are freed from, the power of sin and death, and what we've been freed to, living our lives the way that God designed us to live, which is amazing. We see people freed from addiction and from actual slavery and from consumerism all the time, just to name some of the most obvious ones. But what happens when living the freed life is not such an obvious thing? I think this is why living into our freedom is such a challenging thing for a number of reasons. Reason number one, our own finiteness, finitude, limitations. If we take a leap of faith to accept Jesus' invitation to believe, then here we also lean into the fact that faith means the evidence of things unseen. That's from the book of Hebrews. We could be wrong about things. We could have incomplete information. So could others. Human beings are finite creatures. We are not omniscient. We're not immortal. We're not omnipotent. We're not God. Although we often wish that we were. And though we've been set free, we often still behave in ways that live into the brokenness in which we were raised. We have habits that have not yet been broken. Our egos, our desires, our selfishness, our own senses even can deceive us. We only live so long. We can only experience so much, which means that our understanding is always incomplete. Like Peter learned from Paul, we have much to learn from others, including those in our heritage and history. This is, incidentally, why we read this in Acts 17. The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So there's this community called the Bereans, and they get excited about this message that they're hearing about Jesus. But then they go and they search the scriptures to find out if what they were being told was true. Sort of a trust but verify posture. They were open-minded to these new possibilities. And as a result, they not only owned their own faith and freedom, they go and they persuade others around them at the same time. Freedom only exists as a shared reality, which is what makes it so hard. It is not something we get to claim for ourselves. It's gifted to us by God. And it is then something that we must then extend to others, especially those with whom we disagree. Because it is freedom that allows us to be a community even when we don't all agree about every single little thing. So reason number one, we are finite. Reason number two, freedom matters because of context. Now let me give you a couple of simple examples. How about this translation? We can throw that image up there. Okay. Uh, how about this one? Or how about this one? See what I mean? What works in one place doesn't always work in every other place. We see it with language, we see it with ideas, and we see it with behavior. 
It's not that the things are wrong in and of themselves, but it's where we see something that matters as much as what we see. The whole of the New Testament are contextual documents. Every letter was written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. Obviously, we intend to learn from them. The word is central. But it means that, we, um, it means that as we learn, we need to understand what God was talking to, who was talking to, and why God would speak to them the way that he did. All of these letters fit into the bigger picture of the story of God. And so understanding where in the story they're located and how they apply to us is a work of understanding context. So Paul wrote this, Even though I am free with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. In other words, when I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. choice. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. This is, by the way, why Peter once said that Paul's writings are hard to understand. It's in the book of 2 Peter. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share in their weakness, for I too want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Paul understood that extending freedom to others means to seek to understand them too. That what might at first feel offensive to me might feel offensive because I don't understand it. I remember when I was in India... The locals understood this way better than I did. Um, In India, it is common for men to hold hands as a sign of brotherly affection. And after spending about a week and a half with them at that point, um, one of them wanted to hold my hand on the way to something that we were doing together. But rather than simply taking my hand as would have been habit, he asked me, would it be okay if I took your hand? See, he understood that we Americans take such a gesture very differently than they do in India. I wish I could say that I'd accepted, um, but I knew enough at the moment anyway to thank him for asking the question and that I just wasn't really there yet. He gave me the freedom as a brother to make a decision about what would be best for me at that moment, knowing that the same act means different things in different places. Now, there's a lot more I want to say here, but we'll get to that at some point, but we do need to move on. So, Freedom matters because we're finite, it matters because of context, and finally, it matters because of curiosity. Our freedom in Christ is a grace that allows us to explore the divine mystery of God without fear of repercussions from God or others if we get things wrong. It means that we can be curious. It means that we can ask hard questions that may not have simple or easy answers. I like to say that the scriptures are real world messy. They're not a list of bullet points that say, do these five things and you will live. But rather they are a set of stories and poems and history and sayings and laments and prophecies and songs that need to be read over and over and over again to be understood. They have multiple layers of meaning 
and they have multiple layers of application. They contain a lot of great moments, but they also contain many of humanity's foibles and mistakes and struggles and outright rebellion. If nothing else, the scriptures are honest about who we are. And I think it's this honesty that is one of the reasons they can be trusted. So they allow us to ask questions like, what if? Or how come? Or now what? Or even say things like, I don't really like you right now, God, without fear of retribution from God or from one another. See, faith is a tension that we maintain. It is not a problem that we solve. If we think we don't need to ask questions, that is actually a sign of privilege for us. It means that we don't feel like we have to ask questions because either A, we're already comfortable, B, we've already arrived at an answer that we think works for us personally, or C, we think we already know all there is to know. All of which are very dangerous places to be. Jesus did not come to make those with power or privilege feel comfortable about themselves, He came to seek and save the lost, those without power or privilege, and to remind those of us with power and privilege where we actually stand. See, the Bereans didn't just look back on the scriptures because they were afraid to get it wrong. They also looked back because they already trusted the scriptures as a source of wisdom and realized there's another piece that we missed. And we're excited about the possibility that that piece offers us. Likewise, the members of this council in Jerusalem don't simply issue a ruling to say, you know, these people over here, they're right, and these people over here are heretics. The council, which is actually called a synod, which in Greek means we walk together, this is what they did. They suspended their anxiety, they asked humble questions, they engaged in thoughtful conversation, and they explored the issue together. That doesn't mean it didn't become passionate at times but they stayed together to explore it. And when one side realized it was wrong, the whole council unanimously decides to write a letter to Antioch apologizing and inviting continued fellowship and common mission. So they wrote this. We decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, you know, the two people that they disagreed with, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm that we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Now to lean into that context again for a second, all of these requirements that they're leaning on now are about relating, um, avoiding idolatry in the Galatian culture. All of these things are related to the practices of pagan worship in the temples of the local gods and the Roman pantheon. See, while the Jews were used to living with moral discipline of a sort, they needed to learn to extend their freedom to those who were not used to that. On the other hand, the Gentiles who were used to doing whatever they wanted needed to learn that uh, there is a discipline to being a person of faith. And so Paul wrote to them, not everything is beneficial. 
They continue, the messengers went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. So in their freedom together, they collaborated and they arrived at a helpful place to continue their common mission of sharing the good news of Jesus. They were quick to listen to one another, slow to condemn. They were open to the voice of God's Holy Spirit and the incredible wondrous varieties of the possibilities of God's creation. See, this is the adventure that we get to live as people freed from sin and shame and guilt and death. We get to actually live. As James Bruckner, a covenant theologian, writes, freedom is not for self-indulgence or self-aggrandizement, but to serve and love God in whom alone is found true freedom. Freedom is both a gift from God and it's a discipline in the midst of our faith community. There's one more example I want to share about this freedom in action. Somewhere about four and five years ago, somewhere in there, our congregation here at Bethany made a very careful and prayerful and passionate decision to move from two different worship services of two different styles to one worship service. And we did that because we were no longer satisfied in living out of fellowship with one another. It's been amazing and it's been challenging because music is a kind of important thing to people, right? It gets at our emotions. It gets at the deepest recesses of who we are. But we've grown together because of that struggle, singing each other's songs like we are, not because we love them, but because it helps us love the people who do love them. Not because it's our favorite music, because it's somebody else's favorite music, and we love that person. That is a visible, tangible practice of showing love to one another. See, any tree can become a bonsai tree. There's a wondrous variety of trees to choose from that become bonsai. But not every tree is a bonsai. It has to look like a bonsai tree. It has to be created to be a bonsai tree. It has to be maintained to grow like a bonsai tree. It has to have proper watering and nutrients and fertilizer, enough light. And every tree is different and requires different kinds of those things. But that means that we're the bonsai tree. These beautiful works of art in the care of our creator. We are strong yet fragile, diverse yet unified, disciplined yet free. We in the covenant affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. And so we extend grace and mercy to others, seeking to understand more than to be understood. Let's pray together. God, help us to be that extension of grace. God, when we make mistakes, may grace be extended to us. May this common life we live together be a visible example of what it means to be your people. For we are free. You have set us free. And so, Lord, now may we make your, may, your name known. May we praise you all of our days in the power of your spirit. It's in your name we pray together. Amen and amen.